This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Nomis and Science Young Explorer Award. Are you doing excellent research that deserves recognition? The Nomis and Science Young Explorer Award recognizes bold young researchers who ask fundamental questions at the intersection of the life and social sciences. Researchers who take risks to address relevant and exciting questions with creative approaches, regardless of the research outcome. Submissions are due May 15th. Visit science.org slash nomis, that's N-O-M-I-S, to apply today. Welcome to the Science Podcast for July 31st, 2015. I'm Suzanne Bard. In this week's show, Hannah Armitage talks with Sarah Crespi about the latest online news stories, and then Fred Gozman tells us about the organic compounds detected by the Philae lander upon touchdown on Comet 67P. Support for the Science Podcast is provided by AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science, advancing science, engineering, and innovation throughout the world for the benefit of all people. AAAS, the Science Society. Now we have Hannah Armitage. She's here to talk to us about some recent online news stories. I'm Sarah Crespi. First up, we have a story on emotional hamsters. I like the way the writer starts the story. She had a hamster when she was little, and she thought she was making it happy. Nevertheless, it gnawed its way out of its cage and ended up dying as a result. The question is, why wasn't her hamster happy? Did it have a yen for freedom or just not enough toys? Apparently, this is difficult to know. So, Hannah, what do researchers look at instead of asking the hamsters about their feelings? Researchers looked at a thing called judgment bias, which in this case correlates to the amount of risk that the hamsters were taking. It basically is a measure of how your mood or emotions affects your decisions or behavior. Is that something that they've seen in animals besides the hamster? Yeah, they have. They've seen it in other primates. This is actually the first time, though, that they've seen it in a hamster. And how do the researchers set up an experiment to determine how risky the hamsters were, how happy they were, that kind of thing. This experiment had 30 hamsters that were split into two different groups. One lived a very luxurious hamster life, and they had cushy bedding and hamster hammocks and extra toys. But the other group only had fairly minimal accommodations. They had bedding and a wheel, and that was about it. Before the experiment, they trained the hamsters to know that the left side of the cage had a water bottle that had bitter water. The right side of the cage had a water bottle that had sweet water. Now back to the experiment, they took the two hamsters in the separate settings and moved the water bottles to the middle so that the positions were less clear as to which was bitter and which was sweet. And they measured how many times the hamsters went up to the water bottle to take a drink. And there was a difference between the ones that were living in the luxurious conditions versus the more Spartan hamsters? Yes. So they found that the luxurious hamster conditions actually made for a 12% 
increase in the likelihood to go up and test out which water bottle was which, suggesting that maybe a happier hamster might be willing to take more risks. Could the writer of the story now take this knowledge about what makes hamsters a little bit more happy and use it to make future hamsters happy? Definitely. They're hoping to see how a better understanding of how hamsters respond to different environments could maybe help facilitate happier hamsters, whether it's pet care or in a research lab. Next up, we have a story on a controversial vaccine study. Almost 15 years ago, researchers writing in Nature suggested that vaccines that prevent illness but not infection may encourage the development of more virulent or dangerous strains. But from then to now, this effect has not been shown in the wild. This week, these same researchers have produced this effect in chickens. What disease were they looking at, Hannah? The disease is a viral infection that chickens can get called Merrick's disease. It actually spreads through the chicken's feather follicles, which other chickens can inhale and then be infected. How do the researchers investigate the effect of vaccination on the virulence of this disease? So they did an experiment in which they infected chickens, both vaccinated and unvaccinated, with different strains of Merrick's disease. Some were really deadly, some were mildly virulent. They put these newly infected chickens in with healthy chickens, and they watched the infection rate of the unvaccinated chickens. What were they looking for when they exposed these healthy chickens to birds with or without the vaccine? They're looking for evidence that suggests chickens that are vaccinated can actually carry the disease longer and infect other chickens in the same area. And that's actually exactly what they found they saw that the non-vaccinated chickens with this deadlier strain died immediately and they didn't have time to pass on the disease. But in the vaccinated chickens, they survived longer with this disease and were able to pass it on to their other cage mates. I mentioned at the beginning that this was a controversial vaccine study. Will it give ammunition to those who argue that vaccines are somehow bad for people? Yeah, it's definitely very controversial. A lot of researchers are afraid that this type of evidence is going to push for anti-vax, but the researchers on the study actually say that it in no way is a proponent for anti-vax movements. And they say that even if in some unlikely case human vaccination viruses show this type of correlation, it's actually going to push for more vaccination because it'll be more important to be protected. On top of that, it would also just mean that we would have to take other precautions to prevent disease transmission. What about human diseases? This is a chicken disease. Is it likely that a similar mechanism could work in people? Some of the researchers that we consulted for the study noted that this is a very specific case study for chickens and a chicken-associated virus, and they think it's very unlikely that this sort of correlation could happen in a human virus. In addition, researchers also add that natural human immunity also works in this leaky sort of way. And when I say leaky, I mean that not everyone is protected in the same way against viruses from a vaccine. Some are protected fully, some partially, some not at all. Millions of people around the world receive shots every month, and there's no evidence that this has ever led to any disease becoming deadlier. Lastly, we have a story on drilling deep into the ocean floor for microbes. Microorganisms continue to impress me with their variety and hardiness. They live in incredibly inhospitable places like burning hot, hot springs and under the Arctic ice. Now they have been found more than two kilometers beneath the ocean floor. 
Where were the researchers digging, Hannah? They were digging right off the coast of Japan, like you mentioned, over two kilometers below the surface of the ocean floor. It's in an environment that's under immense heat and pressure, and there's very little food source. What kind of microbes did they find, and how many were there? Is there a lot of life this deep down? You know, it was actually really surprising. The microbes that they found were strangely similar to the microbes that we see in forest soils or the dirt in your backyard. The main difference actually is the abundance. In a cubic centimeter of soil that you get from your backyard, there's billions of microbes. But in a cubic centimeter that they pulled from the sample, there were 10 to 10,000. Okay. It is surprising that these organisms resemble those found in forest soil. Why do researchers think that might be the case? About 23 million years ago, this area was part of a coastal environment, kind of like what you'd find in Florida, like wetlands or lagoons. But as continents shifted, the area gradually sank and was covered by sediment. So is it possible that these are the same microbes or are they just, you know, related to those earlier microbes? Now, researchers aren't exactly sure if these microbes are the same original type of microbes that were there before this land was submerged. It's possible that they've adapted over the years, or the researchers are speculating that these are the exact same cells that were alive before the land was submerged, meaning that these cells may be 20 million years old. Two kilometers is really deep under the ocean. They used giant drills to get down there. Is it possible that these microbes don't actually live there, but were instead introduced? Yeah. Researchers on the study were concerned that their drilling methods were actually introducing new types of bacteria. To try to compensate for that factor, they sequenced genomes of bacteria that were likely introduced by the drilling method itself and then used a statistical probability to try to filter out those genes and just leave the microorganisms from the deep seabed. Okay, what else is on the site this week, Hannah? This week, we've got robot spiders that jump on water and a trip through the brain. Also, on Science Insider, we have news on the resignation of the president of the Giant Magellan Telescope and the movement to block labeling of genetically modified foods in the U.S. So be sure to check out our website. Thanks, Hannah. Thanks, Sarah. Hannah Armitage is an intern for our online daily news site. I'm Sarah Crespi. You can check out the latest news and the policy blog, Science Insider, at news.sciencemag.org. On November 12, 2014, after a 10-year journey from Earth, the Rosetta spacecraft's lander, called Philae, made a bouncy touchdown on Comet 67P, also known as Churyumov-Gerasimenko. Philae was the first spacecraft to land on the solid, rocky surface of a comet. This week, science devotes a special section to the data gathered by specialized instruments on the lander during its first few days on the comet. Fred Gozman led the team in charge of the Cometary Sampling and Composition Experiment, or COSAC for short, a mass spectrometer that withstood the hardships of space to sample the organic compounds present on the comet. I spoke to him about what it was like to finally see the lander reach its destination. I'm Suzanne Bard. Our institute, the Max Planck Institute for Solar System Research, was very heavily involved not just in building an instrument, but also in the building of the lander itself. So I followed this development, and that was just fantastic. These engineering challenges of designing something to land on the surface you didn't know anything about. It could be soft as loose cigarette ash. It could be hard as concrete. We knew very little when designing this thing. It's a bit difficult to explain. An example I chose was try to throw a chestnut onto a table from about three, four yards away. 
then you see the difficulty. It's not easy to stay on it. You just hop off. And it was clear to us that was very, very difficult. It could be anything from just vanishing into the depths of the regolith or bouncing off. Fortunately, the lander chose to do neither completely, but it was extremely exciting times. At the time of landing, it was the 12th of November, and the decoupling from the orbiter was about seven hours early. And then there was just plain free fall of this tiny little, our little filet on its way to the comet. And it landed, I think, something like 30 seconds away from the predicted time, which is really amazing. And there was this so-called touchdown signal where the lander senses, hey, the free fall's over, I'm down. And that triggered an autonomous series of events like switch off the look down camera and switch on some other instruments and switch on the mass spectrometer. And the signal traveling time was about half an hour, I think. So the data came down rather smoothly, surprisingly enough, although the lander was not on ground, it hopped off, but the measurement occurred. And for about 20 minutes, I was one of the very few people realizing that the first spectrum had come down. And I was sitting there quietly in the back of this control room, looking at the sexiest mass spectrum in the world. (laughs) That was great. It was just plain fantastic. That must have been an exciting time. Oh, definitely. (laughs) (laughs) And what was COZAC designed to do, Fred? For me, the Philae Lander is kind of an animal. I mean, if you look at it, it looks a bit spiderish. It has eyes, it has feet. So Kozak, in a way, is the sense of smelling, tasting. It's a chemical sensor. So we wanted to know what the comet is made of. What does it taste like? And it doesn't sound very scientific, but that's an easy way to explain what it is. We have the nose of this lander spacecraft. That's an interesting way to describe it. We have two instruments fulfilling the purpose of nose with different ideas. One was intended to identify molecules. And the other one, Ptolemy, of British design, was intended to identify isotopes, the different types of atoms of one particular element. So the task of identification was split between molecules for COSAC, isotopes for Ptolemy. And the results from Ptolemy's isotope analysis are in a separate paper in this issue by Ian Wright and his team. Now, looking at the big picture, why study the organic compounds on 67P? What's special about comets? Comets are special in two ways. According to what we know about them so far, they formed very far out in the solar system, at a very early age of the solar system. And so they are special in two ways, by giving us insight into the old times of the solar system and the faraway areas of the solar system. I mean, going back in time is not easy anyway, but going out to the far edges and learning something in situ is nearly impossible. Comets, fortunately, bring this history into the inner solar system, and it's accessible for our investigations. That's the great thing about comets. Let's talk a little bit about the mass spectrometer itself for people who aren't familiar. What does a mass spectrometer do? And you said that COSAC is Philae's nose, but how are the two related? The nose is a chemical sensor. It finds out what kind of gas is around you. It's only sensitive for gases. And it's very much the same thing with a mass spectrometer. You need a gas. And then you weigh the molecules. There are several kinds of mass spectrometers relying on different principles. But the one we use is so-called time of flight. You have particles and you push them. And you push all of them with the same kind of push. And as in real life, the light ones get faster. And that's all it's about. You push these little particles 
at the starting line, and then you, you stand there with your little stopwatch at the finish line, and the light particles come first and the heavy particles come last. And if you do that with high precision, you can work out the masses of these little guys flying past your finish line. So how many organic compounds did you detect with COSAC? We found 16 compounds, but the thing is that if you boil it down to what it really means is we see all kinds of bonds. We have nitrogen, hydrogen, carbon, and oxygen. And if you tie them up, you have the single bond of oxygen to carbon, you have the double bond. And similarly with nitrogen, you have these different bonding types to carbon and to oxygen you can think of. And that's the kind of underlying principle we came up with. And what compounds did you find that people here on Earth would be most familiar with? The most abundant one was water. That really wasn't a surprise. Everyone knows there's water in the comet, and that was by far the strongest signal we saw in our data set. And then other simple ones, we saw carbon monoxide, methane, and then molecules of more atoms, alcohols, the more familiar ones, although they wouldn't be very tasty. And nitrogen-bearing compounds and acetone seems to be a bit familiar as a compound, nail varnish remover. So compared with other comets, how does Comet 67P stand out in terms of the organic compounds that you found there? We show that some carbonyls, some amides, some isocyanates, they haven't been detected in comets so far, but they don't come as a big surprise because they're kind of family members. If you see the little one and you add a tiny little chemical group to it, you arrive at this molecule. At the entry of the paper, you talk about the organic compounds found on Comet 67P and how they might give us clues to the precursors of life. Well, what it was all about is going back to the early ages of the solar system. What did it start off with? What kind of chemistry already happened early? These molecules we found are known to be precursors for doing more complicated chemistry. It's pretty clear that comets fall into the inner solar system. They are bound to interact with the inner planets, so they are raining down in a way, or they did in early ages. And what do they carry with them? And is it conceivable that these comets carry so much in payload that if they rain down on nice planets which can harbor liquid water, would that be an environment where life could develop easily? If the environment is right, it's wet, and you have these little molecules you can use as building blocks. If your Lego box is empty, building a castle of Lego blocks will be difficult. But if this box is well filled, it doesn't mean you're going to get to build a castle, but it means that the environment is right. So if you want to, the seedbed is ready. Do they help in creating the right environment for life to emerge? And that was kind of expected before, and it was, I think, confirmed by our measurements. Yes, they do carry the right stuff. It's the right building blocks. If you want to start off making a planet habitable, the infall of frequent comets would surely help. And what are the prospects for getting more data from Philae, Fred? What's going on with the lander right now? When Philae shut down in November, our feeling was that, okay, it's going to get cold, it's going to get dark. So we'll be running out of power, we'll be frozen, but the data communication will likely be rather okay. What we found out later this year was that the lander itself is doing rather well. It's not too hot, it's not too cold. The illumination situation is pretty good, so we do have enough energy, but unfortunately the link is of such bad quality that the communication will be the bottleneck. So the system looks as if it was working really, really well. It just can't tell us anything, and that's what makes it so hard to predict if we get more.
What's the best thing about being part of the Rosetta mission, Fred? What I notice is this great excitement of the mission. It's just so fantastic. If you have the chance to participate early, designing, building, making things, you know, and then see them being put on a rocket and follow this thing for something like 10, 12 years, and then you get data. You see, hey, that's what we did it for. Now we see what this comet is made of, and it's a great experience to have gone through it. Thanks so much for speaking with me, Fred. Thanks, Suzanne. Fred Gozman and his colleagues write about organic compounds detected by COZAC on Comet 67P. And be sure to also check out the paper by Ian Wright and his team about COZAC's sister instrument, Ptolemy, and the chemical isotopes that it detected on the comet. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and many other places on the web, or listen to us on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Suzanne Bard. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science. But did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started.